Welcome to the Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is part one of Girls, 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 where Alan and I will be curating side A of a mixtape celebrating titles attributed to the fairer sex. Good afternoon, Alan. Good afternoon. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I am doing exceptionally well. I and I assume you, uh, we, we both are officially on summer vacation. Yes, 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 yes. So I, I could not ask for anything more. This has been a very long year. <laughs> so, But a long, strange year it's been. Yes, it has. Thank you, Jerry. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just, I don't know. I, I've, I don't know that I've ever needed summer vacation so badly as, as I did this year. And just to know that... Tomorrow morning, I do not have to wake up with the alarm. Is just, I, I, I'm ecstatic. So, uh, puts me in a good mood, and, and actually, I think I think that'll probably transcend and, and come through on the the episode <laughs> today. Um, yeah. If you're a first time listener, we are both school teachers, so we have the summers off. And uh, don't whine about it because you could have been a teacher too. That's what that, I tell my absolutely. My wife. I tell her that on snow days as well. Um, I'm, I'm going to try to be really optimistic this summer. Okay. See, a lot of people don't like to hang out with me on the last day of school because I have a tendency to lament about how quickly summer will go and how, you know, it's just a blink of an eye and we'll be back, which is an awful attitude to take. It is. I've caught myself doing that through the years. Um, but now I, I want to milk uh, the next two and a half months for, for all that I can. And, and it is two and a half. I mean, we, we return earlier every year right I, this year i think it's august 13th i have to report back which yep, it's pretty early it's yeah but i i am just so so happy and you know the restrictions have been lifted and it's almost like we are back to normal at least pretty close in a large close. in a large yes. sense so um i kind of feel like it's uh, after a, a major war back in you know 250 years ago where the treaty was signed but the people on the battlefield didn't find out for about two months later right because the stores <laughs> and everybody's still kind of keeping and, and it's the store's right to do that oh it is yeah but i just feel like um the society at least around here hasn't figured out yet that not only did the CDC recommend it, but our governor lifted all the restrictions for vaccinated people. And um, and we're not anti-vaxxers uh, or anti-maskers by any stretch of the imagination. No, neither. Um, no. But now that we are vaccinated, you know, you and I kind of feel like it's time to kind of open back up. It is, yeah. And I, I, I really hope that when we return to school in the fall, I, I had to assume now that the vaccination is available for middle school age kids, which we both teach at the middle school, um, I'm hoping the masks are gone. Yeah. I, I just, it would be nice to know what my students look like. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. but. We'll, we'll have an excuse for not remembering them at least. Well, and that's true. Yeah. When we cross paths, if I cross paths this summer with anyone that I had in class last year, I really, I genuinely won't know that they were my students. I never saw them. What, no, once. There was one day that we went remote. Um, I think it was right before Christmas vacation. Um, otherwise, I, I, have not seen them yeah. without masks on. Um, you know, we both approach this in a very different way. Um, we should probably explain the parameters. I, I had my own. I, you you took it a step further than I did. Uh, my parameters, folks, on this one, uh, because they are all, all titles that have a uh, female woman's girl's name in the title. Um, I, I set a few parameters for myself. Number one, uh, no song could be... Um, a celebrity's name. 
Okay. So right away I eliminated Betty Davis eyes and I eliminated Uma Thurman, you know, songs of that right, stature. Right. I chose uh, songs that they could not have a last name and they could not have a male and female name in them. In the title. Though. In the title. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, in terms of last name, Mrs. Robinson was out right. as gotcha. an example. Mm-hmm. Um, Jack and Diane would be out. Makes sense. Uh, it just had to be a, a girl's name. Now, you know, it, the title could be longer. It does not have to just be the, the name of, of an individual. Um, but yeah, largely I, I wanted to make sure that the focus was on the first name. Um, and, and that said, you know, I did not require that my songs be about a girl or a woman. So while I, while I don't have this one, like Martha, my dear, by, mm-hmm. by Paul McCartney, it's about know, a dog. the Beatles. Yeah, right. it's about it's about Paul's dog. That would have worked on my list right. because the name is there, even though the song is clearly about well, not clearly a lot of people. <laughs> a lot of people probably don't know it's about a dog, but uh, Martha, my dear, would have worked. So those were the the limitations I set on myself, and really, I probably needed more because this was the most challenging list in, you know. That, that I put together. Well, you could have joined podcast. me and added my parameter, my sole parameter. And, you know, I thought about it and I actually had a list, but it really did not make it any easier because I had easily 40 or 50 song titles. Oh, I had, a, I had quite a bunch too. But my, 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 my criteria matches yours because by default, right? Right. Because I just chose first name only. First name, no last name, no other, no other words in the title. So all of your parameters um, and then one added to that so yeah no i i did i played around with it and i i came up with a few lists of just you know one name song titles um that that would not have been they, they would have been great uh playlists it would have made a great mixtape but there was just there i don't know this one there were a few songs that i wasn't sure would fit in any other episode that that we've talked about doing uh well into the future that I just thought it'd be kind of fun to to give them a chance and, and play them on the on the podcast. Now, do you so. have any that are just a single? Female? I do. Oh, okay. So yes. we, there is still a possibility we might have a match. There, there are. Okay. Yeah, I have uh, one. Let me count through here. Well, right, right. But I um, I think I have three total. Okay. Um, but in my alternates, now I do have I have alternates, but I don't expect we'll match. Um, but in my alternates, four of the six are just individual names. Okay. So you might have you might match my alternates going down the list. I don't I'm I don't know. Now let's see if I remember correctly. You go first. I do go oh, first. All right, I remember this time. <laughs> all right. Um now well, here we go folks. Uh side A, my first choice, my first song selection is from the four seasons, actually. Um it is not Sherry, which I think most people would would choose by default. I actually went with Dawn Go Away. And go away is parenthetical. It's really just Dawn. Uh, so technically a first name only, but they, it does. Because she's to no work. good for him, right? Well, no, it's not that she's no good for him. Isn't that he, the line? No, he's no good for oh, her. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it, it actually comes from the album Dawn Go Away and eleven other great songs. It was released in 1964. Uh, the song peaked at number three on the Hot 100. Um, you know, it's a very self-deprecating song. Uh, lead singer Frankie Valli constantly telling the girl that he's not good enough for her. Um, in fact, you know, the lyric is, think what the future would be with a poor boy like me. You know, he, uh, it, it, it's such a marked change in attitude for the group because they had gone from the swagger of walk like a man 
you know, to the pity of songs like this and, and Bye Bye Baby, Baby Goodbye. Um, Frankie Valli actually said, we, we sang songs about men and their situations with women and about how things don't always go the way that you want them to. So, you know, there was both the good and the bad. Uh, when asked if there really was a dawn, Bob Gaudio uh, explained, he, he was a member of the Seasons and he was primarily the, the songwriter. Uh, Gaudio explained that there is a new dawn each day. I don't know if he's trying to make a pun there or not, but he, but he said the song was not about a specific girl. So no story here, uh, really. Uh, the group's first record on the Phillips label, uh, this song would have been a runaway U.S. number one if it was not for those pesky Beatles. Uh, Dawn entered the top 40 on February 8th, 1964, and it climbed to number three the week of February 22nd behind I Want to Hold Your Hand and She Loves You. It stayed at number three for three weeks until March 14th when it was bumped to number four by Please Please Me. By March 28th, it was at number five as Twist and Shout entered the top five. And on April 4th, Dawn was out of the top 10 and the Beatles held all five top positions. So in February 1964, 60% of the singles sold in the U.S. were by the Beatles. And this song by the Four Seasons was the second biggest seller uh, of, of that month. Pretty as a midsummer's Including the singles released under the guise of The Wonder Who. I don't know if anyone's familiar with them, but they, they did release four singles under that pseudonym from 65 to 67. With, you know, not counting those four singles, this is the only Four Seasons record, single or LP, on Phillips Records that did not have, quote, featuring the sound of Frankie Valley on its label, which is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. But, that is song number one. Now, I know your dad, right, is a huge Frankie Valli and Four Seasons fan. Oh, yes. And I know he doesn't particularly care for the Beatles. Correct. Is that, is, is it having something to do with a rivalry maybe during that time period? Or? You know, I, I don't think so. I, I don't know that he is so well-versed that he would know the history and the facts, um, you know, as I just presented them. Um, he just, I, I think he, you know, he, he grew up and loved, uh, loved the doo-wop. Uh, he loved the the girl groups. He, he just, he loved American rock and roll. And I think, I, I don't know. I mean, he, he, he's a huge Stones fan. So it's not that he was anti-British invasion, but, but I and loves Hermit's Hermits. That's another one that he's a huge fan of. Uh, I, I don't know where his dislike for the Beatles comes from. Hmm. I, I've, I've never figured You'll that out. You have to ask him sometime. Report well, I, back. I have, and he just, you know, he just says, matter of factly, I don't like I don't him. like him. 
But I find that whenever, you know, a Beatles song comes on the radio, he sings along. So I, I don't know if he's talking just the, you know, the four of them as individuals as opposed to the music. I, I don't know. He might, my dad's a hard one to figure out much harder these days than he used to be, especially. All right, it is your turn. Well, um, I think last episode we kind of hinted or basically just said this would be my first choice. So we're going to start with... Allison. Allison. Yes. By Elvis Costello. Which was on my list until last week when you made it very clear we would match. We had so a pre-match. I, I took Allison off my list. Uh, this is one of my favorite songs of all time. So this one had to make my list. First one that came to mind when we decided to do this particular episode. Uh, appearing on the debut album, My Aim is True, so this is, goes back to the very beginning when he was still working in a factory and taking uh, either the bus or the subway home and, and, and writing music. And In fact, when he first got his record contract, he continued to work because he didn't know if it would be a, a success. Right. Um, and this is probably, well, one of his most celebrated tracks. There are a handful we could mention, but um, this one never charted. This one never charted. No, yeah. it didn't. Um, the song, however, and I did not know this, until reading about it at some point, has a very, very dark interpretation. What's that? I'm, I didn't get very far in my research because okay, so I, I took it off my list before I really started investigating. Innocent Me, you know, this song is about a, uh, t- to me, is about a person who has lost or, or either lost the opportunity or actually lost a girlfriend okay. who's gone with someone else. Sure. And he's bitter about it. But he's bitter in a very innocent way. Okay, the album and then the refrain in the song is my aim is true. Right. Which means, you know, I have pure intentions. I want what's best for you. Even though there is some bitterness in the song, you can tell that he's very, very disappointed. The dark interpretation is that this is about a murderous stalker. Really? Yes. Now, it does make sense. I'll give them that. Uh, walk, for instance, walk me, walk okay, well, um, there is a line, somebody better put out the big light. Right. And uh, you know this world is killing you. Yeah, and then the whole idea that my aim is true, literally, uh, okay. my aim is my true. Aim, got so it. if you do take the bitterness that is there, uh, I admit, and you take a lot of these lines literally, I suppose it could be about our murderer stalker. Oh, it's so funny to be seeing you after so long, girl. And with the way you look, I understand that you were not impressed. But I heard you let that little friend of mine Take off your party dress I'm not gonna get too sentimental Like those other sticker valentines Cause I don't know if you are loving somebody I only know it isn't mine You know, it, it it makes sense. I've never, I've never listened to the song, uh, or nor, nor have I ever, you know, imagined it to to mean um, that. I, I've 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 always just saw it as you know a, a someone who's lost right. the love of their life. I, exactly. I, um, but it but it does. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just, it, you it, can listen to it in that way, I suppose. It, yeah, well, no, uh, it I'll works. choose not to, but, um, and normally I like dark stuff, but I love the song so much I can't get myself right. to, to wrap my head around that well, one. Well, you know, in fairness, I've, I've found that 
so many love songs can be very easily, right. um, you know, and then the inferencing is, is there. You can easily take most ballads and then turn them into stalkers. <laughs> so, um, but no, it, it does make sense. I, I just, I don't see it though. Not, not on this one. Costello has denied theories, by the way. They, it's been brought up to him. He's denied this. He actually said the song is about disappointment and was written when he saw a beautiful woman stuck working at the supermarket. He said basically this, you know, he, he, he thought about beautiful women in history, like, like Helen of Troy, who, you know, launched a thousand ships. And, right. And these beautiful women that have, you know, been celebrated um, throughout history. And in his mind, this girl at the checkout counter is just as beautiful. But because of her circumstance, because of her birthplace, because of her situation, she's simply working as a supermarket checkout girl. And how just kind of disappointing that is to him that she doesn't have an opportunity to be this great figure in history. Hmm. That's kind of where it came from. Now, the song took on a kind of different meaning, but that's where he was inspired. Two years later, the song was recorded by Linda Ronstadt. It wasn't a single, but it was on her, I don't think it was, if it was a single, it wasn't a huge hit. I didn't even know Ronstadt covered it. She covered it. And, you know, he, he maintained, Costello maintained publishing rights. And so he was fine because he said he had fun, you know, spending her money. No, no wait a minute. Did she re, refashion the lyrics or because it would, it would have very, I mean, if she sang it as I is. I think the difference was um, she was singing it to a friend. Okay. Okay. If, if, I, if I recall. Got it. Um, I, it's I'm, been a while since I've I, heard her I, version. I am 100% pro LBGTQ+, but I, not in that, not, not not in, no, in she, that era. She, she, yeah. <laughs> I think she alters it where she's singing okay. to a friend. That, that would make sense. Um, however, yes. later, Linda Ronstadt was one of the artists that defied the Sun City boycott in South Africa. The boycott, uh, South City, or Sun City, of course, was a huge resort in South Africa. And because of apartheid, a lot of artists in the 80s, led by Little Steven and, and Bruce Springsteen and many other artists, um, came on board and said they were not going to do business with South Africa until apartheid was lifted. Um, Paul Simon, of course, got in trouble because he did, I'm not sure that he actually played in Sun no, City. He, he never played. He, he went over because he wanted to actually, and, and I, I, I have. I'll tell you what, Graceland remains one of my top five albums of the 80s. Um, he went over just because he wanted to to experiment and, and explore right. and South, Lee, South African Lee music. Smith, Black, Monzamba played on... Right. Um, but no, he never once performed right. in South Africa, never made any money. Well, he made money on the album, of course, but but not, not during the visit did he ever play uh, one song to anybody. So Well, once Costello found out that she had defied... Um, the band, then any proceeds that he received from the publishing rights from that her version of the song, he donated to the African National Congress. Huh, okay. Very, um, very cool. Finally, the song appears on Costello's 1989 compilation titled Girls, Girls, Girls. So it's kismet, right? <laughs> we have to start <laughs> off with this song because that's the name of our episode. And um, yeah, boy, just, just what a song. I kind of almost wish I didn't <laughs> know that dark interpretation, but... Uh, I suppose if I'm in a really bitter mood, I'll think of it that way. There you go. Yeah, no, I, I have always loved this. I'm not a huge Costello fan, but I love, the, I, I've always loved this song. And it was one of the first songs I thought of, actually, which, um, you know, I, I I was not aware that you were such a fan of this song. I don't know oh, that yeah. that has ever come up in, in conversation between us, because I, when I had it on my list, I did not see that as, as a potential match. And then when you... You know, in the in the last episode, we're so you know hyped and and so um, you know about, uh, about your appreciation, yes. oh, yeah. and and I took it off. I just 
I thought, wow, I, I did not know I'm that. I'm kind of a B fan as far as Elvis Costello in the in the sense that um, I really enjoy his music. I have lots of his albums. I never ascended into that A level where I became obsessed. Okay. And I can tell you everything about every single, you know, deep track. Right. Um, so he's on, on the cusp of that, you know. Okay. Part. So maybe someday he'll go to that place. But, right. But this song, above all, despite any, you know, fandom I have of, of Elvis Costello, this song remains gotcha. in my top top. Okay. So I, you're, you're just a hair above me in, in my appreciation for his music. Because I, I have several of his albums. I, I you know, there are songs that I, I love, but I, you know, if you named Deep Cuts, I probably couldn't even tell you what album they are on, even if I own <laughs> the album. So I'll just say um, any album I hear, um, it, it just continues to grow my appreciation yeah. for him. No, I, I'm, I, I get you. Okay. So. Yep. Good. That's Allison. All right. Well, my next song, um, also an immediate uh an immediate addition. This was on my list the moment we, we decided on uh, this particular theme, and it was never, never taken off. It is by Dexy's Midnight Runners from the 1982 album Tu It hit number one, and it is titled Come On Eileen. You teased that on the on the uh, Facebook this week. I did. I did. <laughs> and you ask if there were any fans, as you do, and, and most people, you know, if they reply at all, reply in the affirmative, but somebody said, somebody said emphatically, no. No. <laughs> I know. I <laughs> had to laugh at that um yeah i do that sometimes when i when i place and right now this year it's all 80s artists um with the new year i'll start i'm, I'm thinking I'll, I'll move forward and start naming 90s artists but I, I when i put the artists on and ask any fans i'm just trying to get a my finger on the pulse of of you know the facebook uh, sure, followers sure. just to see who they like and see if that can't you know in some way be used to our advantage on on the podcast but um I, I do. Sometimes I'll specifically name an artist that I know is coming up. Um, in fact, Dexys is not the only one that I have done that ah. for. Um, not necessarily for this episode, right. but but um, yeah, no, that was it, it was it was a, it was a hard no, and I just I I laughed at that. Um, well, okay, th- this song um, it comes from a band whose whose name was actually inspired by the amphetamine drug. Dexedrine, hmm. which I never knew. Uh, Dexedrine, apparently, I don't know if this is true in America, but but in uh, the UK, it's commonly known as Dexies. Okay, uh, contrary to popular belief, the band's name does not have an apostrophe. Hmm. So, which I never knew. I had always written it as Dexy apostrophe S. It is actually just one word, no apostrophe. Uh, the band itself steered away from drinking and drugs, uh, saying that nothing should interfere with their dedication to music. And in 1982, that dedication paid off because the lead single from their second album climbed the charts to number one. In fact, the song did the unthinkable. This song, Come On Eileen, it actually knocked Michael Jackson's Billie Jean out of the top spot. Today, the song is closely associated with other hits of the time. But in truth, uh, Come On Eileen, you know, it sounds nothing like other songs of the era. For one thing, there are no synthesizers on the track. And... You know, that's surprising given how pervasive the synths were in 82. Are they Irish? Because it's, yes. it sounds like almost like Irish folk yeah, music. They okay. are, yeah. And and that that is exactly what it is. They're, they they do have, they don't have synths, but they do have a banjo, an accordion, a fiddle, and a saxophone. Um, the song leaves an impression with a group vocal breakdown at the end, which is followed by an up-tempo fiddle part modeled on the Hebrew wedding song Hava Nagila, no less. Um, yeah, it was, it was very much in the folk tradition.
It was based on a true story. Eileen was a girl that Roland, uh, lead singer, grew up with. Their relationship became romantic when the pair were just 13, and according to Roland, it turned sexual a year or two later. Uh, Roland was raised Catholic, and he served as an altar boy in church. Sex was a taboo subject. It was considered dirty, um, something that fascinated him. So in writing the song, he tried to recapture the feelings that he experienced in adolescence when enjoying his first sexual relationship and dreaming of being free from the constraints of a button-down society. Um, you know, and the song just describes that thin line between love and lust. Now, Dexy's Midnight Runners had no American distribution for their first album, which did very well in the UK and actually contained a number one hit called Gino on the UK charts. Come on, on a... Come on, Eileen was the first single issued in the U.S., and it would prove to be the only American hit for the band. Uh, their follow-up single, the, the Celtic Soul Brothers, made no noise. It stalled at number 86 on the Hot 100. Much of the U.S. success for Eileen can be attributed to its video, of course. Come on, Eileen was in constant rotation on MTV. It remains one of the most memorable and beloved clips of the era, and, and most videos of the time featured, or at least they attempted, to feature impossibly pretty people in unexpected locations. But Dexy's video is delightfully different. I mean, it was an overall clad band acting out the love story on a gritty street, um, and, and Kevin Rowland doing an earnest jig, which I don't know if you remember him you mm-hmm. know, dancing in the, in the yeah, video. Yeah. They were all be, dirty. They were very dirty. Oh, they were, yeah. <laughs> well, they just got out of the coal mine. Well, and even, even the film, I mean, it, you know, the video was very grainy. Right, and they're know? all wearing like bib overalls. Exactly, so. yeah. Um, yeah, he, he, that earnest jig that he performs, it became a defining image of the early MTV era. So, um, yeah, this song, it's, you know, and it tops a lot of people's lists of the greatest one-hit wonders of the 80s. I've I've seen it on many lists that Come On Eileen is ranked number one. I don't know that it would be number one for me, but certainly I love the song and I had to include it here. Well, a few thoughts. You know, those one-hit wonders, I always wonder sometimes if, like, was that just their thing for that video and that song, or is that how they perform on stage? Like, do they wear the overalls? Is that just like their image? Or was that a costume for that particular video? No, that that is actually actually the, the artist, yeah. And then I thought about all the great music that we haven't heard in the 90s and afterwards because MTV isn't looking for obscure... I know. <laughs> looking for anybody to you know, put on, on MTV since they had a difficult time finding programming. Um, yeah, there are probably a lot of bands out there that we don't know about because and, you know, you know that's that, changed. That's, that's the travesty because, you know, we, we always joke, you know, that MTV used to play, you know, music videos and, you know, today's generation scoffs and things that we're making things of that nature up that they don't really they, right, know, they know we're right but that's that's the joke right the, the the meme that you find time and again but you know it's not just that i think our generation misses just watching music videos for the nostalgia of it it really did introduce artists to us that we would otherwise right. never have heard yeah. and it, it opened doorways for a lot of artists and bands that would have had no no pathway to success in the U.S. if not for the music video. You know, it's it just to me. I I think that's the greatest tragedy of of MTV having lost its way. Is that, yeah, I I love new music. I love I love artists that do not sound like the commercial sure. mainstream yes. and a little bit of character. We we can't find that now. Uh, you can, but no, you but, can. But it's it, just, it's just, but you you have to dig. I mean, you have to go out. You know, very purposefully. You have to stroll 
through the the listings on Spotify and iTunes and, and very deliberately try and find artists that match well, others that, of, of your taste. That's and, different. It's because you have your own set of artists, but it's a personal thing. It's no longer a shared common. Exactly. Right. Everybody in the, in the 80s, in the early 80s, could sing along to the song. Today, there would be a select few. You may come across this because of a friend or, like you say, an algorithm on Spotify. Right. But once you discover it, no matter how great it is, you can't really share it with most people. No, you can't. Because it's just not going to be in, it's, their, it's very, in their radar. Yeah, it's very unfortunate. Now, this band, though, what you see in the video is real. In fact... Um, you know, when I was doing my research, it said that um, on stage, especially, Roland liked to change the songs. He didn't change the lyrics, but he would change tempo, or he would, um, you know, change key. He 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 kind of played with the songs in live performances, and he was also known to just stop a song like midway, and he would just go into this improvised speech, kind of like a Springsteen, yeah, right, I, right, you know. Yeah. Um, but Basically, you know, hardcore fans loved it because they loved the unpredictability of it. But with the success of Come On Eileen, this was the one song that he could not do that to. Right. Because when they would perform live, the audience would sing over him whatever he was trying to do. They would actually sing the song, and he, he grew increasingly frustrated by that. Um, but no, they, they were a very very serious uh, band when it came to their music. And, and I'd put this in my top five of, of 80s. Yeah, definitely. In fact, it's the song after Dancing Queen that if you really want to get me to dance at a wedding after a few adult beverages, uh, had if you put this one on, you'll probably see me at really? a dance. Come on, on, oh yeah, okay, yeah. No, it's definitely top ten for me, and yeah, I, it had to be on on the episode. So there you go. All right. Well, um, I'm going to give you a hint as to my next one. Um, Forty eight hours. Second hint, Eddie Murphy. Well, that 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 was my association from the first hint. So. Um, uh, okay, it can't be party all the time, which is no, where I'm no, going no, no. in my mind. I, I Roxanne. Okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, I wasn't even thinking <laughs> no. about his character in the film. Right, right, yeah. right. Okay, I'm going with Roxanne by the Police from their debut album, 1978, uh, Atlantos de Amor. And uh, my French is horrible, so I, I know I butchered that. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is one of their most iconic um, recordings. Um, I guess, according to my daughter, who, by the way, when I'm in, she's 22 now, um, but we do work together now, which is nice, and so we carpool. And um, same rule in my car as it was when she was a baby, and that is my car, my music. <laughs> right? Always, yes. And um, I can't tell you how many times a song comes on. This is one example. Another example is Dreams from Fleetwood Mac. Um, Walking in the Sand by um, uh, Shangri-Las. Um, she'll say, oh, that's a big TikTok song. In fact, she's like, oh, that's where that song comes Walking from. in the Sand is a huge TikTok song? Yes, it You've is. got to be kidding you know, me. No, the, the very beginning of it. And I, I'll explain to you, uh, well, not that it's inappropriate, but it's not in the scope of our podcast, but I'll explain to you why it became kind of Yeah, thing. please do. I need to know this story. <laughs> <laughs> so. um, but um, anyway, um, this is, I guess, a very popular um, TikTok song. Um, it was inspired. This don't have to really have a lot of imagination to figure this out by prostitutes that were hanging out at the band's hotel in Paris, and so Sting kind of imagined a um, a person falling in love with a particular prostitute, and he chose to name her Roxanne based on the character Cyrano de Bergerac. Oh, okay. Yeah. That, ma- I, I, that makes perfect sense. I never thought about you know well, Sting was a former English teacher so it right, makes yeah. sense too just, that he'd find some literary I, I just never connections. made that connection that took Another, very cool band did not care much for the song at all um, by the time this song kind of you know 
they rehearsed it, put it down on tape. They'd kind of moved to a faster style of playing, more of a more of a punk style. Uh, but Miles Copeland, Stewart's brother and the band's manager, heard the track and immediately heard a hit. And this song, this particular song, eventually led to their record contract with A&M. So they have this, even though it didn't really match where they wanted to go. This was uh, that song. Uh, the song was a minor hit at the time, but it introduced the world to the police and started what would be a long hit, a long string of hit singles by the band in the late 70s and early 80s. And um, like I said, now widely considered one of their most iconic songs. Predating this song is an early deep track by Mr. William Joel, also about a man in love with a prostitute, Roberta. Yes. Fun fact. <laughs> <laughs> Which... Um I remember last season after we did our our Billy Joel artist spotlight. Oh, I can't remember the the person's name, but uh, we had a a very um, a wonderful oh dialogue with a dialogue with a listener, with, yes, with yes. A listener mm-hmm. who uh, called us out on, or at least called me out because I had said Street Life was Joel's worst album, and he was a huge fan, and it was a really interesting. Uh, of course, you know, discussion back and forth, but yeah, he said that he loved Roberta, which. Yeah, he's probably the only person I've ever met that, <laughs> well, that I mean, loves Roberta. I mean, not that it's a poor song. Not a horrible but song, but no, it's just, it's, yeah, right, yeah. right. Um, but uh, no, it's <laughs> just funny you brought it up. No, I play music, um, you know, a lot of times at, at school. And again, same rule at school. It's my music, so I play yeah. it. Which sometimes is interesting because a student will come up to me and say, like, who is that? I kind of like that. Um, this song came on the other day, and I'm like, yeah, I better change it. I mean, I have my Spotify set up, so it automatically skips anything that's marked explicit. But occasionally things that are not marked explicit. I didn't want a kid to go home and say, like, you had a song on about walking the streets for money. What does that mean? <laughs> right. I, I think you're giving middle age, middle school Perhaps. age students a little I too mean, I much know what they listen to I, is a lot worse than that. Well, but, not uh, only that, but I don't think they listen my principal quite so always closely. Say, my principal always says, don't do anything I can't defend. And how can I defend playing Roxanne unless I'm studying Cerno Diversity? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, and then I'd probably just show the Steve Martin film. So Yes. Um, well, you know, I, I've heard that today, and I, apparently they did it when we were in school, um, but I, I never knew anyone that personally that, that did this. Roxanne, I guess, is a drinking game. Uh, apparently, a lot of uh, college kids, and I suppose out of college as well, uh, you, you take a shot every time they say Roxanne, which to me is is both fascinating and 
a lost cause because I would think you'd be passed out like you know a third of the way through the song. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, I, quick night. Yeah, but I but I I've read that a few different places now that you know kids they 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 do they use the song as a drinking maybe game just and, a little small sip of whatever uh, perhaps yeah um, but I'm thinking especially as you get to the you know the end of the song <laughs> the when it's just a Lights constant up. loop and I'm like you, you would. Yeah, alcohol poisoning on that my, one. My wife and I, as big nerds, we have a State of the Union drinking game that we play every year when the president gives his State of the Union address. And we have to be careful because there are some phrases that are so common, especially with our former guy president, that we had to take it out of the oh wow <laughs> out of the rotation. But that makes the uh, that makes the State of the Union a little more fun. I, yeah, <laughs> I definitely would. I'm, I'm trying to think. For instance, every time every time the commentator on the television makes a point to say that there is one cabinet member that is not in the chamber in case something were to happen, he would be the acting president or he or she. Right. You take a drink. Like sure. Those types of things. Okay. So, yeah, so, yeah it's kind of like a presidential bingo, state yeah. of the union bingo. Yes, exactly. Just take your take your <laughs> shot. I like it. I All right. Like What's your next one? All right. This is the one that I thought to myself, if if we're going to have a match, it's probably going to be this one. But but I'm going to not going to give the title straight away. Um, rather, I, I want to kind of lead in because this this one is just it's just incredible. So, you know, when I think about it uh, and I'll, I'll I'll even ask you, I, in my opinion, there are only a handful of records that I would consider perfect. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Records that are essential to own on vinyl, no less. I mean, we're talking elite titles that are flawless in their songwriting, sound, production, mastering, artwork, special features. Um, you know, but but that begs the question: Is there a perfect best record? You know, does that even exist? I mean, I. You could it, make a case for Asia. You could. Estee yeah. Um, because I, you know, I think Revolver, I think Rumors, I think A Love Supreme by John Coltrane, Blue by Joni Mitchell, What's Going On, Kind of Blue by Miles Davis, Dark Side of the Moon, perhaps. I mean, they're all contenders. But yes, you named it. Oh, Asia, did I? You did. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Asia, though, I think I, I stand by this is the perfect best record. Yes. I. It just is. You know, for my money, hands down, probably the tightest, most just. It's just perfect in every way, all the elements as they come together. And this is going to be interesting because I also have a song. And it could be one of three. And it three. could be one of, okay, one of two in my case. Well, that's true, yeah. And I went back and forth and uh, changed which one I chose several times. Okay. It'll be interesting to see how much right. of a match we have. Well, Asia, folks, is the sixth album by arguably the greatest studio band that was ever formed. Not arguably. The greatest okay. studio band yeah. ever. And, and, well, let's just clarify. Sorry to jump in here, but... Really, it's Donald Fagan and Walter Becker. Yeah. And then the who's who of jazz and rock and studio musicians would come in and play. So really, when you say band, you talk about two guys and then the rest of the greatest musicians yeah. available, oftentimes competing for you know different parts where they would each contribute, and then Fagan and Becker would choose the best take. Exactly. Anyway, yeah, go ahead. Exactly. So, okay, and uh, hey, I, I'm not going to argue the point, so we'll just call it what it is, the greatest studio band ever formed. So there you go. That's right. I said it. Steely Dan. Um, you know, it It was the group's most commercially successful release, and it sold millions of copies, and it featured three elite singles, Deacon Blues, Peg, and my next song, Josie. And I chose Peg. Did you? Okay, so we're <laughs> so going to we have, have a match. So we have an artist uh, match. We have an album match, but not a song match. Not a song match. So a match nonetheless. Going to have to... You know, choose between the two. Um, okay, so it was it was almost a year after the album was released before ABC Records released Josie as a single in North America. 
in Europe, Josie was actually the B-side to Deacon Blues. Um, but ordinarily, a song like Josie would be earmarked as the advanced single. But, you know, as we've already said, Asia was no ordinary album. So the, the musicianship applied uh, to a tightly constructed song, but Josie over the top. I mean, it just puts an exclamation point to the most solid Steely Dan album of their entire discography. And, you know, they grew more esoteric as the 70s went. I mean, they grew... Which is hard to say when they started as esoteric exactly. as you can get. Yeah. And they continued to get more they did. More they, got, more. they got jazzier. They got groovier. They got weirder as the decade went on. And better, um, I'd argue. And, and, uh, Although they were always solid. Well, yeah. Um, you know, without question. Um, prime example, um, the drumming from Jim Keltner on the song. Keltner, you know, he's always been something of a low-key drummer. I mean, he's not flashy. Uh, he doesn't do, you know, these you know, amazing solos. He doesn't show off his, his talent, but he nearly steals the show on Josie. It's just impossibly tight drumming. And it, his signature fill that restarts Josie after a brief stop near the end of the song is, dare I say it again, perfect. I, it, it's not flashy, as I said, but it's perfectly precise. You know, it, it might be the best Keltner performance I've ever heard. And this man has played with Clapton, John Lennon, George Harrison, Ringo Starr, Bob Dylan, The Stones, Leon Russell, Joe Cocker, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. I mean, it's just, it's just incredible. I mean, everything about this song, it really is. Josie's lyrics are stellar too, of course. Uh, they, they tell of the boys of the neighborhood celebrating the return of a fun-loving, very popular and possibly promiscuous girl named Josie who may have a shady past. Don't know. There's, there's a lot of ambiguity in the song. Uh, she's definitely the desire of all the young men in this blue-collar neighborhood who anticipate the debauchery that may ensue. Uh, the lyrics, you know, she's, she's the pride of the neighborhood. She's the raw flame, the live wire. She prays like a Roman with her eyes on fire. I love that phrase, but I don't know what that means. But I don't think you're supposed to. That's the magic of Steely Dan. Yeah. Um, some music critics have suggested that Josie may be returning from prison which I found interesting. I can see that. Either way, when Josie returns home, the boys tell us they're going to lay down the law and break it. Released as a single, uh, the B side was "Black Cow," which I actually, when we did our black black and white mm -hmm. episode, I included "Black Cow," right. which is about a drink, by the it way. Is. It's not yeah. about a yeah. Or no, I didn't include black. Did I include black cow? I, I think I included. I, yeah, black cow. you did that for the animals playlist. I included right. Black Friday. Okay, is, for yeah. the black episode. For yes. the black episode, right. yeah, right. you did Black Cow for the animals, that's, which that's I right. ended up disqualifying because it's about a drink, but it had the word cow in right. it. We had yeah. that discussion. That's yeah. right. I remember that now. Uh, but but Black Cow, um, you know, it was never released as one of their singles, but it garnered enough radio play to qualify as a double single, that particular 45. So kudos to the FM radio programmers for flipping, you know, the, the 45 over on that one. Josie and Black Cow, though, they're two of Steely Dan's more exotic songs. 
their tracks that blend genres so seamlessly that they remain hard to define. So unlike songs such as Peg, My Old School, Rilling, the, Rilling in the Years, you know, all amazing songs, but they're, they're rooted at least partially in pop rock music. Josie and its flip side have a jazz club feel that, that invites you to press your ear to a locked door to imagine what remains hidden on the other side. At least that's how, you know, I, I approach yeah. songs. Uh, one more item of note, Timothy B. Schmidt uh, appeared on this Steely Dan uh, track. He, he did appear on other Steely Dan albums, uh, Pretzel Logic and uh, The Royal Scam. He sang back up, though, on this track. And if the name sounds familiar to our, our listeners, it's because he later joined the Eagles as for one album bass player and vocalist yes for the long run um but no i went josie so you went peg okay so i okay. now you mentioned this is a good transition you mentioned timothy b schmidt as the backup the reason i ended up landing on peg was because of the backup singer the patron saint of yacht rock mr michael mcdonald okay uh sings backup on a lot of steely dan tracks and yes, of course a lot yeah. of other bands of the era um with that uh, that golden voice and um, he is in the back, um, uh, back up on, on Peg. Um, yeah, Peg is just a little bit sunnier. Josie's a little bit darker. I don't know. I just felt like going a little bit sunnier with this particular um, okay. episode. Um, it, what's great is, um, and I never really thought of it this way, but All Music, which is, um, a, it was a critic by All Music, said, Peg is a sunny pop song with layers of jazzy vocal harmonies, but below that shiny surface, it's really blues at its core. And it's kind of a cool yeah. way to describe the song. It is, and it's just it's just a lot of fun. Uh, like I said, you got Michael McDonald. Well, is it your is it your next? Track no, it's or? not. But I mean, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll I'll defer to Josie because I went back and forth anyway. So if are that's you, your you pick. Sure? Yeah, yeah, we're gonna go Josie. I, no, no, I love no. I love Peg as well. So I no, I'm, we're definitely gonna go with Josie. Okay, because I, I would have deferred to you as well. So, but um, I just want I just wanted to talk about. Michael McDonald. All right. Well, give me, give us some. Well, no. I just want, the only thing I'm going to say is this. Um, I'm going to pick up on what you were talking about as far as their perfectionism. And I may have mentioned this on an earlier episode. I'm not sure if I did. I apologize. But Donald Fagan was such a perfectionist, and it, it really got out of hand as Steely Dan went along. It did. In fact, um, they, they uh, after Katie Lied, which is my favorite album. I'm not not going to say it's their best album, but my favorite album by Steely Dan is yeah. Katie Lied. And he actually issued, if you read the back, kind of a semi-serious apology about the sound quality. Again, to the naked ear, we're gonna, it's going to sound better than any record ever produced. Right. But it did not live up to the expectation of what they had. They were experimenting with a lot of new equipment, a lot of different engineering. And, um, and, and they had in their mind what they wanted to hear and what they heard in the studio. But what finally came out didn't live up to that. And it's like anything else. The more you get to know about something, the more picky you are, the, the better ear you have. And you kind of go on this island that nobody else can understand kind of a mad genius and this is what um, Donald Fagan was but he finally got it right in his mind and in, in everyone's mind on, um, on on Asia in fact it won the Grammy for engineering it's widely considered like the greatest engineered album yeah. ever oh yeah um, and, and of course when you go into engineering you talk about all sorts of things like mixing and the, the different equipment and the way you record the instruments and, and there's just a lot that goes into it in some ways very scientific um, art meets science but the sound of that album, like you said, especially on, on vinyl, it is just... Oh, it's... Yeah. And, and there are layers of that that I'm sure you and I can't even appreciate of people that are real audiophiles oh, can hear yeah. uh, when they listen to that album. So, good choice. Yep. Thank you. I, All right. I, th I thought it could be a match, but yeah, Peg makes perfect sense too, so... And, and, and it's funny you mentioned Black Cow, because um, yesterday afternoon, my wife and I were traveling and um, we're listening to... Uh, she likes The Bridge on, on XM, okay. which The Bridge has all the artists I like, Here's my snobbery. 
it's mostly the obvious songs yeah. that I just kind of get tired of. Um, but no, it's, it's a great station. And, um, but um, Black Cow came on, and she's like, yeah, this, they play this all the time on Yacht Rock, on the XM oh, yeah. channel, which she loves. I can see that. And, yeah. and I like that channel, too, but it just, I, boy, to put Steely Dan in the category of Yacht Rock yeah. no, is, it, yes, it fits the genre, but it's, it's, it's yeah. man, that's like taking they do, though. I, it's, a work of art and putting it yeah. you know, in the garbage. Kind of, <laughs> that Ab- was a little absolutely. harsh. Absolutely. Well, no, but I, anyway. I want to 100% agree, but they do. I'm not just, you know, that particular state. I mean, yacht rock itself as a genre loves Steely Dan, yes. and it, it it pains me. And I'm glad though. But, <laughs> it, but it, it does. It just pains. But so me. many people now have gotten to hear Steely Dan that may not normally. I mean, that sure yacht rock listeners or people our age maybe a little bit older, and they've heard of Steely Dan, but maybe just at the time and never really gave him a second thought, right? Um, because they were a little bit highbrow, a little bit cerebral. They were. Again, uh, they were on the snobby side of things. Uh, a lot of people say the recordings are very cold. Which you can make a case for. You can, um, yeah, But uh, I think they found a new audience here with the Yacht Rock crowd. So good transition then into my next tune because it is also by a station that has now claimed them as Yacht Rock. Okay. And it is a station by, or station, it is a band by a group of studio musicians who were tired of playing on everybody else's record and everybody else getting the notoriety and the fame and they were just, you know, in small print the studio musicians. So they came together and decided to form a band on their own so they could cash in a little bit. Do you know who I'm talking about? Not specifically because I, the story you just shared could be a number of, well, not, not a lot, but, but it could be a few different, I, I don't know. And their name is really not a specific reference to The Wizard of Oz. It's more about the ways they would label their tapes in the studio so they could distinguish which ones they played on. I'm talking about Toto. Okay. Toto. We have a match. Do we really? Well, <laughs> well I can't say that necessarily because... You get, did Ed, you choose Pamela or no, did you choose Rosanna? I went, I went Rosanna. So did I. Okay. So look at that. We already have um, two matches. Yeah, we didn't well, think we'd match at all. And, you know, and the reason I said I may not, I, I don't know if you know this, Toto actually, and they have at least one single female name track on every one of their albums. Oh, I just thought of Pamela and Rosanna. Yeah, the top no, of my head. in 78 on their first album, it was Angela. 79 on Hydra, it was Lorraine. Um, in 81 uh, on turn back it was Eleanor Toto 4 was Rosanna uh, Isolation had Carmen and Hollyanna Fahrenheit had Leah and Pamela's on the 7th one as is Anna so yeah they had at least that's why I didn't know but uh, Pamela of course is the other yep well you know celebrated song but in 82 from Toto 4 and I wanted to dispel the rumor right off the bat there was a rumor that I heard as a a kid and always believed it until I finally looked into it Um, this song is not about Rosanna Arquette. Now, in my, I actually found that it was one hundred percent about. No, well, Rosanna just, just I'll tell you what I we can decide, well, but I, I think I know why you yes, say that. Yes, yes. Okay, yes. yeah, go ahead. Rosanna Arquette was dating the band's keyboardist at the time. Yes. Okay. The band and Rosanna Arquette heard about the rumor, and even though it was completely false, decided to keep the rumor alive by admitting to the press that, yes, it was about her, even though it was never really about her. It was written by David uh, Potch and his right. several girlfriends he had known, an acclamation, an acclamation yeah. of, of different no. girls. So, yeah, you are right on okay. that. Yeah, that, and I found that. Um, yeah, because it was Procaro. Steve Procaro was the, the keyboardist who was dating Arquette. And basically, um, yeah, I when how do you pronounce his name? Is it? Potch? David Potch. Oh, that's Potch. how I've always pronounced it. Um, I may be wrong. I apologize, yeah, David, what, if I'm getting that wrong. Yeah, I, you know, I... I should have looked that up. I, I, 
I've always pronounced it Pesh. So it, it, it probably is. I, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm just assuming. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I found that he was writing about a number of his previous school loves and he just took the name Rosanna um, because Arquette was there and, the, you know, it fit fit right, the rhythm right. and the, the sound. I, I love the fact that they just kept the urban legend alive. Yeah, no, agreed. I can see why you like it because it's very jazz inspired. Absolutely. Um, and in fact, the unique rhythm that they came up with for the track is now known as the Rosanna Shuffle. That little, you know, rhythm yep. they got going. Uh, the end of the song is also unique because after the band had finished one of their takes, uh, Jeff Beccaro, as you mentioned, just kept playing uh, and the band kind of burst into this spontaneous jam and they liked it so much, they kept it. So that little tail end, I'm not sure if they cut it off on the single or not. This, Yeah, on the radio edit, it's it's shortened. Okay. But, but on the album, I mean, it just keeps going. Right, it's, right. And it's amazing. Yeah, know? so that was just kind of, uh, you know, on the spur of the moment, and they, and they kept it in. Um, as iconic as this song is, never quite reached the top spot, kept away from number one by Survivor's Eye of the Tiger yep. and the Human League's Don't You Want Me. So for five weeks, it sat at number two, and those two other songs really? refused I to I, let it in. I didn't know that it, it was stuck behind Human League. I, yeah. I, I knew Eye of the Tiger. I thought it was Eye of the Tiger the entire time. Yeah, um, yeah what, you know, I, I went with a different, I went a different route in, sure, in yeah. my notes for, for the song because I, I focused on Arquette, uh-huh. actually. Okay. Um, and, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy. It shows how incestuous the music business can be. Um, Procaro and Arquette, they broke up not long after this song was released, okay? Uh, and it would not be the last time, though, that Arquette dated a musician. She had a turbulent relationship with Peter Gabriel in the early 90s. In 2007, she went out several times with Paul McCartney. Um, and, you know, basically, uh, where is it? Mean, I'm not going to, you know, go over everything in my notes. But um, an- another tribute to Arquette can be found in the 1982 hit Shaken uh, by Eddie Money, who dated her. Um look no further than the first line with Rosanna's daddy had a car she loved to drive um, and one more 80s hit uh, with a connection to Arquette uh, when the tubes needed a young kid to star as a carnival rider in their she's a beauty video mm-hmm. Arquette suggested her 12 year old brother Robert who got the role because not Rosanna, David not the future no, actor no, not David um, but uh, Rosanna was friends with the tubes and total guitarist Steve Lukather co-wrote the song she's a beauty um, I mean, it's just, I mean, Arquette is, was kind of all over the radio at that time. But And then later it appeared in Pulp Fiction, and yeah. she's had quite a career. Uh, yeah, she did. But, you know, it, it was kind of mind-blowing, because I did not know, you know, her connection with all these, you know, premier bands of the, the early 80s. Even, even the video, you know, I mean, talking about incestuous, you know, just artists, and, you know, it's like seven degrees of... Kevin Bacon. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, the girl who played Rosanna in the video, she may look familiar to fans. She was uh, Cynthia Rhodes, uh, who played Penny Johnson in the movie Dirty Dancing. Patrick Swayze is also in the video, but most people don't catch it. He's less visible. Uh, he's he's wearing the red jacket among Rosanna's suitors. And the West Side Story style dance uh, fighting used in the clip, which was used almost a year before Michael Jackson did in the video for Beat It. Um, you know, Swayze is the one that choreographed all of that. And even more trivia, Rhodes uh, was actually married to Richard Marks at the time. So, yes, I mean, yes, that's you, correct. You really can. You can, I mean, it's like literally there's, you know, I, I joked, you know, seven degrees of Rosanna Arquette, but no, you, you know, can all, these, all these bands are so um, 
you know, they're, they're so interconnected that it, it's the entertainment industry itself that it's, I think we lose sight of that sometimes. Um, the song did win Grammy Award uh, for Record of the Year, um, and it helped Toto for win Album of the Year. Uh, the band also won Producer of the Year uh, for their work on the album because they produced themselves. Hot take. Here's my hot take. Get ready for this. Um, and I'll also tell you why I have this hot take. So the last few weeks of school, I told you I play music. So I decided that I would play the Billboard Top 100 playlist on Spotify starting in 1980 and going up. When I got to about 1990, I realized that A, I didn't really love the music all that much. And B, it, necess- it was getting into inappropriate territory. Right. So then I started going down from 1979 down. In, in, in fact, currently I'm... I, I took. I told you about the Roxanne. I, I took a day off and played Rock Hall inductees, which is why Roxanne came up. But I'm currently like in 1960 right now. Okay. Anyway, um, I'm gonna. And you're gonna run out here pretty soon. I think it was 56 that Billboard. 55 might be the earlier 56. One of those two. Yeah, yeah. somewhere right around there. That when the, they started with the Rock the 100 Hall. started. But, but um, yeah, so uh, my hot take: uh, the best year for pop music in the rock era is 1982. Really. I, I just after having compared them so closely, um, I had a, a lot of reactions to a lot of different years. And that year, I just remember sitting there thinking, "Oh my gosh, this is so much fun!" This this year, nineteen eighty two. I wouldn't have said that. I would have said maybe eighty three, eighty four as, as as early. And those were great years. But eighty two was such a great year for pop music. You know, I I can see it. Um, you know, I the thing with for me. I mean, if I look it up, I, I can name a number of songs. You know, from any given year, but the early '80s. You know, we we were what eight, nine, ten, eleven right, years old. Right. So many of the songs, not not the songs, so many of the years kind of blend together. Sure, to me. So, well, you have to go back and look at the, the list. So '82 specifically. It's also when I was on the cusp of really starting to listen to the radio on my own, and not just what my right. dad listened to. Yeah. And so a lot of the songs have a lot of really nice memories for me. So that may be it yeah. more than anything. But no, I, I'm right there with you. In fact, '82 is probably about the time that I started. Purchasing my own right. albums. Yeah, me as well. You know, vinyl. Um, interesting. All right, All right. Well, we have two matches, so we do. Um, <laughs> you're up uh, next. We each get to go to our alternates at least one time. Um, Rosanna, though, is actually on my side B, so it's it's a good ways away before I'll get to my alternates. Um, okay, so my next one is actually uh, it's it's a newer song. It's from 2008. 
from the album Circus. It's by Britney Spears. And I had to. I, I, I apologize. I had to. Uh, it is If You Seek Amy. Okay. And I don't know this song. You don't know no, it. I don't know this song. Okay. Well, I, I very purposefully, very deliberately uh, pronounced and, and enunciated the title. I will do it again. If You Seek Amy. Ah. Okay. Yes, okay. All right. Mm. Well, uh, her sixth album, Circus, um, this was the third single. All right, and it, it's interesting how it came to be. Uh, if You Seek Amy was co-written and produced by Max Martin, who had previously written hits for Spears' first few albums, including Baby One More Time, Oops, I Did It Again. Um, this marked the first time, that, though, that they had worked together since her third studio album, Britney, in 2001. The first two singles from this album, uh, they were Womanizer and Circus. They were both top five hits, peaking at number one and number three, respectively. In December 2008, Spears decided to let her fans choose the third single from the album, and a poll was added to her official website to choose which of the 10 remaining tracks on the album would be released next, okay? So on January 7, 2009, it was announced that If You Seek Amy had won, receiving 26% of the total votes. After the announcement was made, radio stations weren't quite sure what to do <laughs> due to the double entendre of the song's chorus. And you, you've come, oh, yeah. you picked, oh, yeah. okay. Yep, Just yep, want to make sure yep, you yep, picked, yep, picked yep, up yep, where yep, I was going yep. with this. Um, program directors remembered too well the issues that they had faced uh, in 2005 with the release of the Black Eyed Peas Don't Funk With My Heart. Right. A song that had no obscenities, but listeners misheard. <laughs> okay, so unlike the Black Eyed Peas, Spears' new single pushed boundaries very deliberately obviously. Clear Channel Radio was especially worried. Um, the company had just laid off 9% of its workforce, and they were in no mood to finance a fight with the FCC. Okay, So the controversy surrounding this song, it began long before the single was released, because young children were already singing along, chanting F-U-C-K me to the horror of their parents, you know, listening on their earbuds to the album. Uh, to further complicate the matter, Circus had been packaged without a warning label of any kind, okay? Rolling Stone writer Daniel Kreps defended Spears, arguing that parents should have been aware of the singer's musical themes and that parents should actually take, you know, authority and, and you know, look into the music that they purchase for their young children. Um, I don't disagree with him, um, but, you know, he, he was kind of in the minority there. Then the Parents Television Council got involved. Mm. Uh, they threatened to file indecency complaints with the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, against any station that played the song between 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. Um, the PTC president, Tim Winter, said, quote, there is no misinterpreting the lyrics to this song, and it's certainly not about a girl named Amy. <laughs> he said, it's one thing for a song with these lyrics to be included on a CD so that fans who wish to hear it can do so, but he said it's an entirely different matter when this song is played over the publicly owned airwaves especially at a time when children are likely to be in the listening audience. Okay. Don't disagree with them. I, I have problems with the PTC, but I don't disagree with that particular statement. About this time, uh, RBR.com, Radio Television Business Report, okay, RBR.com, they reported that Circus was actually reviewed by Common Sense Media, 
I, you, you know common sense. Movie, I do. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. That it, it, for those that don't, it's another organization whose mission is to help parents manage their children's media consumption. I feel they're, they're pretty fair. They're just, they they, they basically just explain what's there, and you yeah. can make up your own No, I, Yeah, I, I have no problem with them at all. I don't find them preachy. There's no agenda. It's, it, it is. It's very fair, very objective. Well, it rated Spears CD, common sense rated Spears CD, appropriate for age 13 and up. And it made no mention at all in their review of If You Seek Amy, <laughs> okay? Even more interestingly, um, the, you know, it, the incoming FCC chair was Julius Ganachowski, and he was a founding board member of Common Sense. So the threats of the PTC to file complaints with the FCC were kind of, I mean, it, it opened up doorways and it, it opened up all kinds of investigations, how Common Sense Media did not object to this and how uh, the new FCC chair was going to be the head of Common Sense and would he actually follow through with complaints when he approved not only the album but therefore the song for ages 13 and up caused all kinds of headaches for this for this song. Um, then the PTC uh, extended their threats and, and said that they were going to file um, complaints against any cable music channels that played the music video. Um, but the FCC, of course, does not have any control over cable. So that one died a quick death. Finally, Spears recorded a radio edit titled If You See Amy, uh, which Jive Records released to American radio stations. Um, and, you know, the, the edit spelled, you know, F U C Amy, and the controversy came to an abrupt end. Oh baby, baby, have you seen Amy tonight? Is she in the bathroom? Is she smoking up outside? Oh, oh baby, baby, does she take a piece of lime for the drink that I'm a buyer? Do you know just what she likes? Oh, oh, oh. tell me, have you seen her? Cause I'm so, oh, I can get her off of my brain. The wordplay, though, of Spears' single was not new. Scholars actually compared the double entendre to passages of William Shakespeare's Twelfth Night and James Joyce's Ulysses, where characters covertly spell out profanities in the plays and in the, the novels, as well as blues songs. So many blues songs, I, including songs by Memphis Slim, uh, R. Stevie Moore, April Wine, uh, and, and even pop and, and rock artists, Poster Children, The Script, Every one of them has a song titled If You See K, as in, hmm. you know, a woman's name K. Uh, even the title of Van Halen's 91 album, For Unlawful Carnal right, Knowledge, right, right, right. beats Spears to the punch. The truth is, as is always the case, though, the more the media talked about and attempted to censor the song, the more publicity the song received. Right. So uh, the song received extremely favorable reviews from critics, but in the end, it was only a modest hit. It peaked at number 19. Um, it's believed that the limited airplay on the radio was to blame. Uh, still, here's the thing. I did not put this on there to be controversial or to, you know, to play with 
you know, our, our listeners, you know, should they be listening to this with children in the room? I genuinely think, and, and most music critics agree, this is the standout track on her album. Hmm. Um, you know, it's just a stomping dance floor beat with building sense and, and Spears' delivery during the chorus is strong, it's confident, it's fun. It leaves no doubt that she's having a blast being the bad girl. Um, you know, we've talked about we're, we're going to have a Guilty Pleasures uh, mixtape later in the season. Brittany is definitely going to make my Guilty oh, Pleasures. Yeah. I, 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 had to, I, I have a soft spot for her. I love Britney Spears. I've always loved Britney Spears. And I, I can't, I'm, here's the thing about Guilty Pleasures. I don't really think they exist because you like what you like. Sure. You know. Um, it's, a way, it's a way you can maintain your snob credibility. Exactly, yeah. And that's all it is. But nonetheless, I, I've always loved Britney. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this whole, you know, free Britney thing that's going on now. Yeah, I haven't watched the documentary, yeah, so I, I haven't I, kept up with it. Yeah, I, I watched the documentary. It's, it's interesting, but that's a discussion for another time. Anyway, I, I want to, you know, apologize. Um, Dave, I hope uh, maybe... You know, I don't. I don't know how you would edit it when we play the the piece because fine. well, actually, I don't even know that we need to because it's all know, good. It is. Um, but to parents, when you go to the playlist, you know, cover your your kids' ears if they're young. But I do. I love this song, so that was my my next choice. All right, very good. I'll I listen to that one. All right, my next one comes from 1979. Um, it the album was a double album that followed one of the most successful albums in rock history. Um, in my mind, maybe maybe the greatest pop album in rock history. I, I think you can make a case for it. In 79 was the 1979 was the follow-up, the double album follow-up, 1976. Okay. I'm talking about Rumors by Fleetwood Mac. Right, and you're talking about Sarah. And I'm talking about Sarah yeah. from yep. the album Tusk. Almost included that. Almost I, included. I did not, but almost did. And, and the, the Tusk was a little more experimental. Lindsey Buckingham decided to, you know, after the success of Rumors, people wanted another Rumors, and, you know, like a lot of great bands, they're not going to give you necessarily what you want. Um, and it didn't do as well. Even even the, the song Tusk was very experimental, and that song oh, yeah. did, did fairly well, but but a lot on there didn't quite hit what the fans expected. Well, well, Gypsy, Gypsy did fairly no, well. No, there were a few. No, yeah. there were a few, of course. Yeah. Uh, and Sarah uh, uh, was a hit. Yeah. Um, there is a little discrepancy about the origin of the song. Let's see if you can follow along here. This is like a soap opera. In fact, yeah. I was going to try to emulate the beginning. Remember that? Remember that? Um, wasn't there, there's an old show in the '70s sitcom called Soap? Oh yeah, it was yeah. That syndication. It, it was the '80s actually. It was um, the '80s. Yeah, Billy and, Crystal. Uh, I love. It was a whole yeah, yeah all star cast. Uh, but they George would begin Mulligan, with, yeah. if I remember correctly, they would begin with a whole little story. At the end, when they say like confused, well, you won't be by the end of okay. So yeah, I, I right. was going to try to maybe work this into, but let's just let's just read it straight. So, Stevie Nicks said the song was written for a close friend and wife of fellow bandmate Mick Fleetwood. Okay, so Mick Fleetwood's wife, okay, and friend of hers. She writes the song for her. Got it. Her name is Sarah. However, Don Henley, okay, who was not a member of Fleetwood Mac, but of course of the Eagles, but right. hanging around the same circle. Yeah. And Don Henley and Steve Nicks dated for a time, okay? And he says the song referred to the name of their unborn child. All right? Now, Mick Fleetwood confirms Nick's account because when... <laughs> this is... Okay. Uh, the two of them, so Stevie Nicks and Mick Fleetwood, became a secret couple for a time after Nick and bandmate Lindsey Buckingham split up. 
Okay, I take a step back. Wait a minute. <laughs> Stevie Nicks and Don Henley had a yes. child. They had an unborn child. So stillborn or aborted? I, uh, I, I believe she ended the pregnancy. Aborted. Okay. Yes. Um, I didn't even know that. Yeah. So uh, yeah. okay. Okay. All yeah. right. Unpause. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> so okay. So the triangle after triangle we have home. Right. right. Yeah. Um, during this time, though, Fleetwood also started seeing Nick's close friend, Sarah, which takes us to the beginning, okay? So I guess in the timeline would be somewhere around there, uh, Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham split, okay? Stevie Nicks then starts dating other bandmate, Mick Fleetwood, for a time, but kind right. of secretly, all right? But then comes in Stevie Nicks' friend, Sarah, and then Mick starts dating Sarah. And that's how it all comes together. Anyway... Okay. <laughs> Stevie Nicks later confirmed Henley's version as well, admitting that she did name her unborn child Sarah. So it's kind of like, hey, you're both right. But (laughs) that's the background. (laughs) And then Nicks also said that Sarah is also her alter ego, her muse and the, quote, poet in her heart. just a very complicated Yeah, and then Nixon history. Henley, of course, had a single together. Right, Mother and, and Lace. Mother and Lace, yeah. Right, right. Um, interesting. Okay. Very cool. I am. Um, so, why Sarah and not Rhiannon? Uh, I like the song Sarah better. Really? Yeah. Same here. Okay. I, I, <laughs> well, no, I was just curious because... Plus, Rih- I, can't, I can pronounce Sarah better. Okay. Easier. <laughs> yeah, well, the reason I asked because Rhiannon, of course, is, you know, it defines Fleetwood Mag. It's huge. And when I was making my list and Sarah was on it for the longest time, my wife kept re- just pushing me. Why not Rhiannon? Why not It was Rhiannon? on my list too for a while. Oh, it, yeah. it was. But I, I, I just said, you know, I I really like Sarah and it's a song that you never hear. Which, which you know, some of the, some of the songs that I've chosen are, are no-brainers. But I also, we haven't gotten to a lot of them yet, but a lot of the songs that are coming up are songs that you just never hear, Yeah, you know? Right. And and I was like, Sarah is just, I think it's underrated. I think it's an underappreciated Fleetwood Mac song. It's still not, I mean, one of the greatest pop songs ever, of course, Landslide. Oh, yeah. So it's not yeah, quite yeah. up to Landslide standards for as of a Stevie Nicks uh, compos- composition, but it's pretty close. Yeah. All right. Okay, very cool. Well, we're going back to the 80s uh, with my next one. Um you know, despite all the mythology to the contrary, uh, the name, the phone number, and the music for my next song 
came to songwriter Alex's call as he sat in his backyard in 1981. He was just sitting in the shade trying to write a four-chord rock song, and it just came out of nowhere. There was no Jenny. There was no bathroom graffiti. And at the time, Call had the guitar lick, the name, and the phone number, but he hadn't figured out what the song was actually about. So enter his good friend Jim Keller, who played lead guitar in a small outfit called Tommy Two-Tone. Okay. I hope you're going to explain to me why they just didn't simply use the TV moniker of 555. I'm I'm getting there. Call played what he had for Keller, who immediately laughed and said, Ow, it's a girl's number on the bathroom wall. And they both had a good laugh, and Call said that's exactly right. That's exactly what it is. So with Keller's help, the verses were written within 20 minutes. The two were just having fun. Neither thought the song would get cut. In fact, even after Tommy Two-Tone made the record and the song received modest airplay, it really didn't have any significant promotion. It did get a fair share of requests, though, which kept it on the charts. But then, notoriously, the prank phone calls began mm-hmm. and the song exploded. Yep. Okay. Um, Tommy Two-Tone, first of all, is the name of a band, not a solo artist. I never knew that until oh, I did my I, research. I, I kind of knew that it was a band. I, yeah. I thought Tommy Two-Tone was actually an, an artist. I did not realize it was a banned at all. So I, that shows my ignorance on, on the whole thing until I started looking into this. Uh, the group was actually led by Tommy Heath and Jim Keller. And originally they called itself Tommy and, and the Two Tones. They had a minor hit two years earlier with a song titled Angel Say No, which charted at number 38. I, I don't know the song. I should have looked it up and gave it a listen, but I didn't. Uh, but with Jenny, they actually made history. For years, Tommy Two Tones said in interviews that there was a Jenny and that she ran a recording studio. At other times, they said it was inspired by a real girl who band member Tommy Heath met in a nightclub, and 8675309 was her parents' phone number. Neither story was true, but the fictional accounts made for a better story, and it earned the band a lot more media attention. So the song had a profound effect, though, obviously, on anyone who happened to have that phone number in 1982. It also proved bothersome to any girl named Jenny, frankly. Uh, There was actually a high school in Louisville, Kentucky that had this phone number at the time. They actually received 50,000 phone calls in one week during school hours asking, is Jenny there? And this is because their area codes weren't included at the time. Right, exactly. It was only a seven-number exchange. Exactly. Many, many people had to change their phone numbers to prevent the prank calls because they were happening at all hours of the night. As a result of the song's notoriety, Movies and TV shows began using oh, the prefix interesting. 555. Interesting. Yeah, the 555 was in response to this song um, when, whenever a phone call was made on screen. It, it's, and 555, of course, is a prefix which doesn't exist in the real world. I wonder why they just never used 555. I, I don't know. Hmm. Um, now, see, I was under the impression that soon after the song was released, the phone number was actually taken out of commission nationwide. I, I just thought no mm-hmm. one had this number. But I was surprised to learn that, in fact, it still exists, and people still call it, apparently. But with area code, you're going to limit the amount of calls you're going to get. You do. But I was surprised to learn that in 1999, okay, Brown University put in a campus exchange. They just randomly decided to put in a campus exchange of 867, Brown University. Nice. The number 8675309 went to two freshman girls who then received prank phone calls um, they said at at minimum of five prank calls a day before they pleaded with the university to change their name. Please tell me one of them was named Jenny. 
I could not find their oh. names. I could not find their names. I was praying that one of them would be. I don't know. Uh, their names were not uh, readily available on anywhere that I looked. Um, be hilarious if it was. And then in 2004, after laws passed allowing people to keep their phone numbers when they changed carriers, a man in New York tried to sell the number 212-867-5309 on eBay. He actually received considerable media attention and bidding had actually reached a more than $80,000 for the phone number before eBay canceled the auction on the grounds that phone numbers are not technically owned by their users. Uh, yeah. Apparently, though, it was, all the bidding was done primarily by major businesses. Hmm. They were all bidding on the auction because the businesses wanted the number because it's so recognizable and easy to remember. So is the number still in use? It is. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I can't say that we have one in our particular area code i suppose one need only dial to find out and if you do you know who to ask for I, I'm sorry, I never actually titled the song for yeah, it. It's eight six seven five three zero nine slash Jenny is, is the yeah. title. But um, yeah, I just, I don't know. I, it, it makes for a great story. I mean, and I'm sure, I'm sure the number still exists I, because everything that I found said, no, it's never been actually removed from. Well, if we ever get an official phone number, we'll make sure that we try to grab that one. That'd be great. That would be. Wonder if we, wonder if you can <laughs> pick phone. Yeah, we should try that all right your your turn all right next one is one of my favorite songs of the 90s and it is jane by bare naked ladies it's it's funny how many times bare naked ladies have come up in our podcast and i and again i consider myself like a b-level fan Mm -hmm. of bare naked ladies but uh, they do have some really really good stuff they do yeah from 1994's album maybe you should drive um you know this is this is an example in my mind. You, you mentioned perfect album. This this is a perfect pop song. I have a small list of what I consider perfect pop songs. The last was it a couple weeks? Last week I talked about the laws. Um, there she goes. Yep, is one example, and uh, this is another example. Uh, it's simple but pleasing to the ear. Um, it's one of those songs, and I, I can't describe this. Maybe it's just me. Maybe someone else has a name for it. I don't know. But uh, but there are certain songs. I don't know if it's the certain arrangement of the chords, a certain combination of you know, instrument. I don't know what it is, but I feel it in my gut every time. I like it's just a pleasurable feeling. Like, ah, like I feel it deeper than I feel just about any other song. Right? There are songs that are pleasing to the ear, songs that you can sing along to, songs that are earworms, songs that have emotional uh, connections to them. But then there are just certain songs. The first time I hear them, I'm like, oh man! Like I just feel it really, really, really deep down. Okay, I, it's, it's, no, that's the best no, I can I've, describe it. Oh, and I've, I've been there. I, I've. The same holds true. Jane is not one of them for yeah. me. But, but no, I totally... And, and there are a couple 
places where the where the chord change, I feel it more. So I think it may have to do with a certain just combination of chord changes that just somehow sync with my body rhythms. That sounds really hokey, but I don't know. Something. Oh, anyway. It makes sense, actually. <laughs> Jane St. Clair, and that's the title of the, uh, the woman in the song, is actually the intersection in, in Toronto of Jane Street and St. Clair Avenue. Huh. Now, Stephen Page co-wrote the song with Stephen Duffy, who said the combination of the streets sounded like the most beautiful intersection in the world um, Stephen Page didn't have the heart to tell him it's not, <laughs> but decided to use that as the protagonist of the song. And I just had to say, why can't every song be as great as this song? Because it just, I don't know what it is. For. I mean, it, it also, in addition to the I can't, you know, I feel it in my gut kind of thing. It, these are songs I never get sick of, no matter how many times. I yep. could listen to it on repeat forever, and I would never get sick of it. The girl works at the store, sweet Jane St. Clair. Dazzled by her smile while I shopped there. It wasn't long before I lived with her. I sang her songs while she dyed my hair. You know, it's a great song. I, I hadn't even thought about Jane, honestly, coming into this this episode. So it was one of the earlier ones I, I added to my list. Yeah. Very cool. I yeah. um, no, it's a great song. Yeah. Um. Okay. So you're. Uh, that's all. That's good? all. All right. Yeah. Well, this is my last track for side A. Um, this one. Uh, well, let me let me preface a little bit here. Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road. Uh, is Elton and Bernie's Hollywood album. Okay, they reflect on Marilyn Monroe's tragic death. They remember Roy Rogers. They even take a trip down the Yellow Brick Road, obviously. But then there is my next song. Did you pick All the Girls Love Alice? I did. Interesting. All the Girls Love Alice, yes. Which is actually a surreal art film in my mind. Um, you know, it's, it's a song about a heterosexual 16-year-old prostitute who sleeps with older women before she ultimately kills herself that's that's pretty good summary yeah i mean it's it's a dark yeah. dark too yeah, yeah it's it's wild subject matter for a pop song okay and it's one of the best rockers though on the album i, I it's just i love the song i mean musically i love what goes on in the song in recent years it's become one of the few non-hits that elton regularly plays in concert actually um elton didn't try to obscure the subject matter of this song um he said it was, quote, about a young girl who gets seduced by the naughty ladies. I mean, that's how he defended it, and that, that, that was the end of the conversation. Uh, the song marked the first time that Elton sang about gay relationships. Okay, now, now Alice in the song is not... Right, and this is, a, this is a Bernie composition. Yeah, yeah, it's a Bernie composition. As far as yeah, yeah. lyrically. Um, yeah, um, but it was the first time that Elton does sing about gay relationships, although it has nothing to do with him personally. Uh, the first time he sung... Uh, or I'm sorry, the first time he sang 
I'm, I am an English teacher, uh, from the perspective of a gay man, was in 1981 on his track Elton Song, uh, which had lyrics by Tom Robinson, uh, who was a gay man. Um, what's interesting about this song, though, is that many AOR stations added this track to their playlists in 73. Because, um, yeah, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, folks, was 1973. Um, because it fit their format, you know, the criteria of less popular songs, deep cuts by famous artists. And one theory posited by some radio folks who had plenty of time to ponder the song over their smoke breaks, um, a lot of DJs came to believe that this song had something to do with Alice Cooper. (laughs) Really? Yeah, this blew my mind. Cooper was an acquaintance of Elton, and Bernie Toppin would later write lyrics for Alice's 1978 album, From the Inside. Hmm. Okay? But when I was starting to do my research, website after website after website... Alice Cooper just keeps showing up that this song is about, and I, I, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, how in the hell does this song about a 16-year-old prostitute <laughs> have anything to do with Alice Cooper at all, right? Um, well, I can say with confidence, if you've ever heard that uh, story or, or read it, perhaps online, um, many people still believe that Cooper was an inspiration for the song, but in fact, it isn't true. <laughs> well, and Alice Cooper is is the band. It's like Marilyn Manson. It's the band's name. Exactly. I don't know if later he changed his stage name to Alice Cooper. He may have, but I, I it began know. as the band it, it did, name. yeah, exactly. Um, according to Toppin, who would know best, he wrote the lyrics, the character is actually a reference to Alice's adventures in Wonderland. Mm. And he has said that he imagined the character falling into a Wonderland of sexual adventures with older women and that was the madness, okay? I mean, it does sound like a Skinamax film, yeah, doesn't it? It yeah. really does. Yeah. He said that was the madness that she endures and then finally takes her life because Interesting. of uh, you know, the experience. Um, yeah, I, it is a dark tune. That is my sixth and final track for Side A. And I believe this would be my last song and the last song of um, this Side A, Yes. Yep. All right. This one, I thought for sure you'd have this one. This is 80s gold right here. Laura Branigan. Gloria. Gloria. I thought about it. These skating, we didn't do this for the, because the, we did we, slow, we went, we went, yeah, couple c- skates. But skate. if we were just going to do a general roller skating yeah. mixtape, 
this would have to begin it. Gloria. This yeah. would the oh, height yeah. of, of roller skating, the height of uh, early 80s pop. Yes, Gloria by Laura Brannigan from her 1982 album, Brannigan. This I did not know, and maybe you did not know either. The song originated in Italy. Really? Where pop singer Umberto Tozzi made it a hit in his home country in 1979. So Laura did not write this. Huh. It was performed by Umberto Tozzi, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Brannigan, who I believe it was brought to her by her manager, was very skeptical to cover it at first, but had the, the lyrics translated, and of course it became a big hit for her as well. Although in her version, she's addressing, this is very similar, I think, to the Linda Ronstadt we talked about earlier. In her version, she's uh, addressing a friend who appears to be acting recklessly over a man, whereas the original was simply a man to a woman. Mm-hmm. Okay. Brannigan, another fact I did not know, this is why we do the podcast, I learn things, began as a backup singer for, any guesses? You won't guess this in a million years. I, I would have no idea. Leonard Cohen. She was a backup really? singer for Leonard Cohen. That is a relationship I never, I know, never would have. Um, I mean, Cheryl Crow for Michael Jackson, I kind of get. Yeah, that one makes a lot more sense than Gloria, or sorry, <laughs> than Laura, Laura yes. Brennigan and, and yes. Leonard. Now, I love Leonard Cohen, but that is, I would not associate yeah, her yeah. with him. That, that's I mean, wild. I, don't get me wrong, I don't own a demean pop music, but it gives her a little more weight and credibility when I know that she, because oh, Leonard yeah. Cohen, I mean, the. Yeah, okay. Cohen almost made my list for this episode. He, uh, he did. Which, Suzanne. Yeah, yeah, Suzanne. I almost went with Suzanne, but I, did, I, I didn't. Anyway, Brannigan enjoyed a, a string of hits following Gloria, including Self Control. Remember that one? Oh, yeah. Um, which was also the cover of an Italian hit. Really? She had a nice little pipeline there. Yeah. That is crazy. Yeah. Um, after her pop career kind of cooled off a little bit, she actually played Janis Joplin in an off-Broadway musical. Did you know really? That? Yeah. Unfortunately, she died of a brain aneurysm in 2004. Oh, she, she's passed. Yeah, she I, passed. I didn't yep. know that either. Okay. Yep. And um, Gloria, the song itself kind of came back into the zeitgeist, um, unfortunately, on January 6th. I don't know how much, how much you paid attention to the news on that day. It was a very disheartening day with the insurrection at the Capitol building. Oh, yeah, yeah. But there is a clip that was posted, I believe, by Don Jr. Um, of their quote celebration prior to the insurrection okay you can you can go watch this online um in this video the trump family are in a tent and it's right before either right before or right after trump addresses the um crowd okay whereas most people would interpret that he basically gave them permission to go down to the capitol okay right before that they're playing the song gloria because we know Trump likes to play his music, as a lot of politicians do. Right. And this was a song that apparently he loved. And the Trump family, several members of the Trump family, including Don Jr.'s um, girlfriend, I don't know if he's married her yet. Uh, anyway, she's dancing, and, and they're, just, they're awkwardly dancing to the song Gloria right before the Capitol building is about to be sieged. And so, unfortunately, <laughs> this is not the way that... Um, you know, I wanted this song to be brought back um, into well, the zeitgeist. No. But yeah, and I totally missed that particular. Yes. Um, yeah. A lot footage. of people. A lot of people <laughs> misinterpreted as the the timeline as at, they were dancing while the siege was going on. It was not okay. I'll give them at least credit for that. Well, not. But they, it was prior to the speech yeah. that may have incited it. Okay. Yeah. No. While while it was happening, they were inside the White House. Right. But, but I um, no, I. 
I totally missed the footage there. I yeah. d- had no idea they were dancing to Gloria on January 6th, which is not a song that I would associate politically with any candidate. No, or, and I'm or, assuming or it's just because it's, a, it's an upbeat crowd that whips up the crowd, right? That's important that's, for any yeah, politician, yeah. like an opening act. Um, and that's one that kind of got the crowd um, huh. going. said that I, I attempted to make a list of just single female names and I did have Gloria on there but I, I couldn't decide if I wanted to use Laura Brand again or if I wanted to use them oh yeah yeah yeah. Van, oh, yeah Van Morrison of course it's a classic you know? yep. and because I couldn't decide I just took it off <laughs> I did that with the Beatles too because I, I could not decide I, I didn't know do I want Eleanor Rigby do I want Julia do I want uh, Michelle. Michelle. Do I, I mean, I, I could not decide what I, I had Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds at one point. I'm like, right. I couldn't decide what's even Lovely Rita. I, I couldn't decide what song by the Beatles I wanted. So I just didn't include a song by the Beatles. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, and them is a great, uh, their, their glory is a great, uh, great song as yeah. well. Uh, I mean, a, a, truthfully, a better song, but sticking in the, the yeah. Gen X zone, you know, I, I had to go with Gloria. Right. No, totally get it. All right, folks, that is our side A. And I think we decided pre-episode um, that instead of, because in this new format, last season we attempted to do everything in one episode and the, and the episodes were quite lengthy, Very <laughs> going nice. over three hours at times. We decided to break it up to side A and side B. What we found out uh, was happening was we would create a, an order for side A, but then when we'd introduce songs in the second episode for side B, we realized that the order for side A needed to be changed. So we decided why even attempt to make an order until we have all of the music to choose from. And so we are still going to make a playlist on Spotify of our selections today. So you can listen to them during the week. But that will not be our final order uh, of the mixtape, which we will reveal on a playlist after we release part B. Right. Yeah, the, the playlist that we will be posting um, to accompany side A it's going to be it. It is just the songs in the order in which we yes. named them. Um, so we're not. Yeah, it, there's nothing. Uh, no sequence. No segue. No 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 flow. Perhaps just I, the songs. Just the songs yep. as we name them, and we will create the playlist after we've created the mixtape. So right. that is that's that's, that's side a. a any anything to add any sponsors we should mention uh yeah definitely have to uh give a shout out to jay callahan painting um very good uh very old and dear friend uh of mine and and dave's uh she serves the greater cleveland area uh please look 
her up on, on social media, Jay Callahan Painting, uh, to help with all of your painting needs. Um, she won't let you down. She does an incredible job. Um, but that that's it. That's all I got. Yeah, and if you would like to, to be a sponsor of the show, if you have a small business that you would like to advertise on our show, please reach out to us. You can reach out to us at uh, Gen X Mixtape. Um, oh, I'm sorry, it, it's, it's the new email address is podcast, right? Podcast at genxmixtape.com. Uh, or you can reach out to us on Facebook, uh, on Twitter, and on Instagram. Correct. Right. Um, yeah, uh, you know, we'd, we'd be more than happy to to give you a shout out, and we, we could certainly use the help with, with sponsorship if anyone's interested. Um, we haven't said this in a while. Uh, please, if you're... If you listen regularly, if you're a fan of, of what we do, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, that is the best way to, to grow our listening audience. Uh, the more reviews we have, uh, the more people will listen in, and we we really want to continue to grow our audience. So if, you'd, if you're willing, if you're able, if Apple Podcasts is how you listen, please do leave a review for us. Um, you can also leave a review on Facebook. Uh, that is an option as well. Um, and that yeah, that, now we, literally well, that's, and, that's and, all and I got. we've been seeing a nice <laughs> so. bump. We've been seeing a nice bump uh, for season two, which is very encouraging. Yeah. Um, and, and I think uh, probably the the best way the word gets out about a podcast is just word of mouth. Oh, I know so. most of the podcasts that I listen to um, are because someone knew that I would like it because of my interest. So if you have a friend that's into music, that's a Gen Xer, not even doesn't have to even be a Gen Xer, someone who just likes Gen X culture or wants to learn more about those years and the music and the and the media of those years, um, please suggest us. Um, they might dig it. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, if you do listen, you know we pull music from all sure decades. Uh, you know, and but uh, Gen X is the sweet spot. That's our sweet spot. Yeah. So. All right. And that, that's it for this week. All right. Um, hot funk. Oh, did you have something else no, you wanted to say? I was just okay. going to say, let, All right. let's, let's. Hot funk, cool punk, even if it's old junk, another mix of memories awaits next week. But for now, press pause, lift the needle, and hit eject. And we will see you on the flip side. Mm-hmm.